Welcome to the Physics Central Podcast. I'm Cala Cofield. This week's story comes from the APS April meeting that just wrapped up a little over a week ago in Denver, Colorado. The story centers on something called radiometric dating. This is a technique that's used to determine the age of things, things like dinosaur bones and rocks and dead bodies, and even the age of the Earth itself. Today we'll talk to a physicist who is working on a radiometric dating technique that is very useful for dating water and ice, and scientists are already sending him samples from all over the world. And this information about the history of water on our planet actually has some very practical applications. That's today on the Physics Central Podcast. So like I said, I was at the APS April meeting, and I happened to hear a talk by this gentleman. Yeah, so I am Zhen Tian Lu. I'm a senior physicist at Argonne National Laboratory, and I'm also a, a part-time professor at the University of uh, Chicago. Over the last year, Lu and his team at Argonne National Lab have been receiving some very interesting mail. They're getting water samples from all over the world. Uh, we've got uh, some uh, surface ice samples from uh, Antarctica. This place is called Taylor Glacier. And uh, we've got groundwater samples from the outback of Australia. Ten locations on six different continents. These samples are being sent in by scientists who want to know about the history of water on Earth. They want to know how quickly water flows between underground aquifers. They want to know about currents in the ocean and the formation of glaciers. And so they send these samples to Argonne National Lab because Lou and his team have this technique to figure out how old these water samples are. And by old, I mean how long these samples have been isolated from the atmosphere. So this doesn't apply to surface water. Many of you may be familiar with this concept of radiometric dating. This is a technique that can be used to determine the age of things, things like layers of rock or fossils. And radiometric dating is based on an interesting phenomenon. Certain types of atoms experience something called radioactive decay, which means they break down. They effectively disappear. And what's really important to radiometric dating is that they do this at a very regular rate. So carbon-14 is probably the most commonly used atom in radiometric dating. Carbon-14 is a carbon atom with two extra neutrons, so it's an isotope. And it decays. It gradually breaks down. So if you took a sample of carbon-14 and you sealed it up and buried it in the ground and you came back... Oh, about 5,730 years later, half of that carbon-14 would just be gone. Because that's the half-life of carbon-14. It's about 5,700 years. And scientists know that. So you can see how if a scientist knew how much carbon-14 was in something when it went into the ground and then they measured how much carbon-14 is in it today, they could figure out how old that thing is. 
Okay, so the one caveat is you would have to know how much carbon fourteen was in that thing to begin with. Well, scientists have actually figured that out because carbon fourteen is in the atmosphere.、Uh, that's how it gets into these things like rocks and even organic material. But carbon fourteen isn't the only radioactive isotope in our atmosphere. So, getting back to the scientist you met at the top of the show, Lou and his group have developed a method for measuring some of those other isotopes in a sample. So, instead of carbon fourteen, they look for argon thirty nine, krypton eighty five, and krypton eighty one. And the method they've developed is called the atom trap trace analysis method, or ATA for short. Now you'll notice I said krypton twice. Krypton eighty-five has four more neutrons than krypton eighty-one, and that's a very small difference between two isotopes. So you need a very sensitive technique to be able to identify them. So here's how ATA does it. Yeah. So what we use is a laser trap.、Uh, a lot of people are using it now. You, Mm -hmm. uh, you can use、uh, laser beams to slow the atom down and to capture the atom. Once the atom is captured, it, it appears as a bright dot in the middle of a vacuum chamber. So、uh, you can look through the windows and see a bright dot. And with my eyes, I can see、uh, a dot of、uh, maybe 100 atoms. A single atom I cannot see. But we have a CCD camera that can easily see a single atom in the trap. This trap only works when the laser frequency is tuned to the resonance of that atom. And since atoms of different isotopes and different elements have very different resonant frequencies, so it's like each species has its own radio station. So you can dial the knob, and we actually do have a knob to tune the laser frequency. You can dial the knob to the radio station of that particular species, and then this trap only traps the atoms of that species. So Lou and his colleagues have figured out this really cool way to pick up the radio station of argon thirty nine and krypton eighty five and krypton eighty one. But we were talking before about using carbon fourteen in radiometric dating. I mean, why isn't Carbon fourteen enough. Why do scientists want to look at more than one type of radioactive isotope? Different radioactive isotopes decay at different rates. So depending on how old your sample is, you might want to use a different isotope to figure out its age. Krypton eighty five decays very quickly. Half of it will disappear from a sample in ten years. So it's not great for dating very old samples. And vice versa for krypton eighty one, which decays very slowly, even slower than carbon. It's commonly used to date groundwater that's between fifty thousand and eight hundred thousand years old. Carbon is good for dating objects that are thousands to tens of thousands of years old. And carbon dating is popular for another reason. Scientists have known how to do it for a long time. The first carbon dating technique was developed in the 1950s. An improved technique was developed in the 1970s, and that is still used today. The technique uses something called accelerator mass spectrometry. So this involves accelerating the isotopes from a sample 
to very high speeds. Now remember, two different isotopes will have a different number of total particles, so they'll have different masses. And we all know that it takes more energy to move a heavier object than a lighter one. So you can kind of see how accelerating the particles can tell you how massive they are, and then you can use that information to figure out which is which. And then after that, it's a matter of being able to count up how much of each isotope is actually in your sample. So that's how scientists count carbon in a sample to figure out how old it is. But this technique won't work for all atoms. There is a, a, a trick, however, that the accelerator mass spectrometry people uh, needed in order for radiocarbon dating to work. And that's not well known. Even in physics field, it's not well known. The trick is this. You need to start the ion as a negative ion. Start like a carbon-14 with an extra electron. Okay, and it turns out carbon uh, likes to grab an extra electron. Okay, and that's a key in order to separate carbon from its uh, abundant uh, contaminant, which is nitrogen. Now, this trick doesn't work on noble gas, on krypton, on argon, because krypton and argon are very content with the number of electrons they have, and they really don't like to pick on an extra electron. And it's because of this reason accelerator max spectrometry has not worked well. It works a little bit, but it doesn't work well for radio krypton dating, for radio argon dating. And that's just one reason why radiometric dating of krypton and argon has been difficult. Lou and his team first demonstrated that the atom trap could work all the way back in 1999. But they've only just been taking samples from scientists for a little over a year. And Lou says the delay came down to efficiency. So in 1999, when we first detected Krypton-81, our efficiency was uh, 10 to the minus 7. So if you give me uh, 10 million Krypton-81 atoms in the sample, I can only capture one, and the others are lost. And with that, we would need uh, something like, uh, I forgot now, a kiloton of water or ice in order to do one analysis. That's completely impractical. So uh, it was nice science result, but it was, uh, was useless uh, in 99. So throughout these years, we've been improving efficiency along the way. And right now, we have reached uh, an efficiency of 10 to the minus 3. And we need a water ice sample around 100 kilograms or 100 liters of sample. Now it's becoming useful. That, that amount hydrologists and glaciologists can get. And certainly we want to continue moving along this line. Hopefully we can deal with a sample of a few liters in the future. After more than a decade of tweaking this technique and making it more efficient, Lou and his colleagues are seeing results. They're helping geologists and hydrologists and glaciologists and this information is not just filling out the historical record, it has very practical applications. For example, dating groundwater supplies can actually tell scientists how reliable certain water sources will be. 
Now, the, just the age of water itself doesn't tell you uh, how the water flows. But if you go to a um, grid of wells uh, over a large area or a grid of water samples in the ocean and determine the age of each sample and uh, plot it out on the map, then you can tell uh, how the water has been flowing and uh, how fast they have been flowing. So there will be a spot that's uh, very young, and so you know, oh, water has been just entering the ground uh, recently. And then uh, its neighbor will be older. Then you say, oh, okay, water has been flowing from the, the entry point to this older uh, spot. And then you can trace the water towards older and older as you go. Once they know, then they can build a, develop a hydrological model. Uh, if you have a reliable water model, then uh, you can plan usage in, in a more scientific way. For example, if the water is very old and it doesn't flow at all, let's assume that there's great resistance between here and uh, 10 kilometers away, then you shouldn't pump water uh, at that spot. If you pump, the well will go dry very quickly. On the other hand, if the water flows fast, then you can presumably can pump a lot of water without uh, risk uh, having the well dry very quickly. So with physics, we can look to the future and to the past. I'm Calla Cofield. You've been listening to the Physics Central podcast. As always, you can find more podcasts, our Physics Buzz blog, resources, and so much more at physicscentral.com. Tune in next week for more of the Physics Central podcast.